<laughs> Thanks for having me here, Doug, in your friend's house. Yes. <laughs> it's a very nice house. Yes. Well, welcome to the endlessly rotating uh, physical presence of Best Worst Podcast. Hey. And, welcome uh, back. Good to have you. This is Jacob over there. Hi. This is Doug. Hi. That was probably a really confusing way to introduce that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, it's been ages, and uh, the last time we talked, we were at the film festival, yeah. and that was in July, and it's now November, so... Holy crap, it's November, it's been that long. <laughs> yeah, we're that disorganized, but... Where um, have you been? Uh, where have I been? Well, yeah. I, I've been in... I was actually in America for September, October, and I actually went to a couple film festivals. Um, oh, really? So, what did you get to? Well, I went to Fantastic Fest. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So uh, that was in Austin, Texas, and that was uh, eight days of... I think it was something like 29 films. Okay, off the top of your head, top five? Uh... Number one, without a doubt, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, it'll be a film a lot of people hate. Absolutely loved it. It's just like, um, did you see Amer? No. Okay. Um, it's Amer was sort of this abstract rendition of um, giallo and horror film stuff done. Oh into, yeah, yeah, yeah. With sort of like uh, this sort of dreamlike meditation based on it that became a thing in of itself, mm. and. Um, Beyond the Black Rainbow felt like the early 80s science fiction version of that. The director described it as um, the, the movie he imagined when he was 10 years old and in the video store looking at all the movies he couldn't rent. Uh, and um, yeah, just stunning to look at. Um, a, real, a real trip of a movie, this great analog synth score. And um, yeah, just really struck a nerve with me. Damn. Um, It'll not be to everybody's tastes. A lot of people hated it. Um, I I loved it, and I, I think it's one of the best big screen trips of all time. Oh, awesome. um, uh, in terms of probably the best film um, that uh, we need to talk about, Kevin, oh, yeah. um, which uh, the Lynn Ramsey film, and I, Lynn Ramsey also did Ratcatcher and Morgan Collar, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which are both films that are really well respected, and I, and I never quite gelled with either of them yeah and, I, it's one of those ones oh boy those, both those films are ones that i thought well you know they're okay a little bit kind of bland maybe yeah they, this this really makes me want to look back at them um the opening half hour in particular we need to talk about kevin is just sheer stunning and it's almost just the way it goes back and forth through time and um almost to a level of abstract film mm-hmm. and while still giving you the overall impression of what's happened. Um, loosely, it's um, Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley, our yeah. parents mm-hmm. whose um, child, Kevin, um, has committed an atrocity of which the details are revealed. It's uh, Columbine-esque, yeah. and we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And um, But the, the details of that, the before and after, um, all the way to um, the child is a very... You know, eighteen month old and early developmental stages, oh, yeah. and um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of question about. You could get in the philosophy of, oh, is a child really born evil, or is that something that oh, is yeah. made up for the movie? I think some people have trouble with that, but in terms of just the cinema of it, and as an experience, if you accept that premise, it's just a stunning looking film, stunningly acted mm-hmm. film. Are you a Tilda fan on the whole? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm generally Team Tilda. <laughs> I hate that phrase. I should stop using it. Philip isn't sports. But, um, yeah, I've 
I've liked her in just about everything I've seen her in. Um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm oh. not such a big fan. I, 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 I mean, I have enjoyed her in a, in a few things, but right. um, what have you not liked her in? And this might be an unpopular statement, but I, I really didn't dig um, I Am Love. Um, well, I mean, I, it's I definitely just... a film that had many uh, <laughs> critics. Did you not like her in it, or did you not like it? Uh, I guess it was more it, but she was so kind of firmly wrapped up in it that it was hard yeah. to kind of sort of separate that. Yeah, I mean, she was definitely part of that aesthetic of yeah. wildly... Um, melodramatic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I mean, I, I think that's the, the amazing cool thing about it is that she's she is able to disappear in a certain way. And, um, you know, and even though she has such a distinctive physical appearance, that's to see her back to back and so, something like that. And then Michael Clayton or, um, you know, this film, mm. um, I, I feel like I'm forgetting a lot of really obvious Tilda Swinton films at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, anyway, um, yeah, so big on that film, uh, clown clown. I have not laughed more in years in a theater. What, what it's an is amazing it? film. It's a Danish film. It's uh, from the Zentropa production company. Oh, yeah. um, and um, as far as I can tell, it's based on a long-running Danish TV series that's the Danish equivalent of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, right. Which okay. is like kind of two guys who are playing slightly abstracted versions of themselves in real life um, that are just consistently doing really inappropriate things. Um, in this film, the two guys have decided to take a trip down a river to this brothel, um, which is a secret from one of their wives, but um, have neglected to mention certain things to their to what's going on, but then they wind up bringing this nine-year-old kid along. Um, and so it, turned, <laughs> it turns it, into this, basically this weird like mix of um, the hangover, curb your enthusiasm, and bad, uh, not Badlands, um, Deliverance. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I've heard the director compared it to Apocalypse Now a bit as well, and he's like, well, that's a comedy. You know, they're going down the river and stuff goes wrong. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, in the, like um, the wife of one of the characters is... Um, I'll massacre the pronunciation, but uh, uh, Eben Hijele, who is oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in High Fidelity, and uh, yeah. Jorgen Leff, who is um, the, yeah, the four, Five Obstructions and, and yeah. uh, The Perfect Human and what have you. Yeah, and um, Eben was in uh, The Boss of... The Boss of It All, yeah. yes, yes. Um, yeah, she's been in a heap of open hearts, I think. Um, but um, yeah, I, I don't think you actually need to know the ins and outs of Danish celebrity. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people. I think there's a Danish pop star in there that's a big deal that was oh, yeah. completely lost on me, but you get the idea. Yeah. But it's, and I'm not even a Curb Your Enthusiasm fan, so it's like that kind of humor, and I'm always a little iffy on. And I just, um, yeah, I just completely fell in love with that film. A Boy and His Samurai, speaking of films to fall in love with, um, to watch an audience that goes to a festival to watch films like Human Centipede and things yeah, like this, yeah, yeah. come out of a film and use the word adorable and mean it and love it. I think it was voted the audience favorite. Oh, wow. Um, it's by... I was not prepared for this discussion. I do not have the name in front of me. A Japanese director, he did a film called Fish Story. Um, his films have been woefully... Um, Neglected. I don't think any of them have played New Zealand Film Festival. Oh, in general, they haven't got a lot of play in American film festivals. Um, a few of my... I've seen Fish Story, and it's an amazing, crazy, 
end of the world punk rock um, ninja love <laughs> story about writing a book and a song. And it, it, sounds, that, it sounds like essential cinema, really. And a fish story is amazing. And this film is somehow completely different. Um, basically, it's a time travel story about a single mom and a kid and the samurai that suddenly gets transported to present day that yeah. ends up in their lives. And it just is note perfect in hitting that right balance mm-hmm. of not being too cloying yeah. and not and not underplaying it. I mean, when things get serious, they do actually get serious and a bit dark. Um, but also and and also just going in really interesting directions. I mean, it's it's almost a good counterpoint would be Ghost Dog in the sense of like oh, yeah, yeah. A, a modern person applying a samurai aesthetic in a yeah. different setting. It's almost like take a samurai applying that aesthetic to doing laundry and grocery <laughs> shopping and eventually cooking, and cooking becomes a huge part of the movie. <laughs> and, yeah, um, yeah, so it's, uh, that that's a one intriguing titles there. Then, yeah, yeah, those those, um, those are a few of them. Um, uh, Rabies, uh, Israeli horror film, not quite on the same tier as those, but I still really, really oh, yeah. enjoyed it. Um, that. That film uh, is basically, uh, it's the first horror film ever from Israel, and I was okay. sort of billed as a slasher, but it's a weird one because it's like, it's there's this kind of supernatural forest, and there is a slasher in it, but it's also like affecting people's minds, and they're going a little bit crazy. And, so like a bit of a psych uh, horror as well as a... Yeah, and then there's the landmines. <laughs> and um, in, in the Q&A they talked about how they're really influenced by um, Korean movies um, they brought up uh, Save the Green Planet which I haven't seen but um, mm. the Bong Joon-ho oh, yeah. you know like host yeah. and, the, um, and things like that come to mind where the tone can just shift like that and yeah, there is yeah. there is a lot of laughter um, it's also they've also done not that almost anyone would know this but they've done a lot of casting against type um, oh, yeah. the, one of the lead actors is this um uh, Lear Ashkenazi, I believe is his name, who was in Late Marriage, and he was like kind of the studly single guy that's getting married, and here he's this really schlubby, overweight policeman. He put oh, on yeah, like yeah. 20 or 25 pounds for it. He's in Footnote, actually, oh, right. um, yeah, yeah. which I didn't see, so I couldn't tell you which character he is. Right. But um, And apparently they're all kind of cast along similar routes, which is lost on us. But it was still it was still really good fun. It took me about 20 or 30 minutes to really gel with it. It has some first-time filmmaking unevenness in terms of shooting yeah. and bits and points but um overall um just builds and builds and really becomes a lot greater than the sum of its parts and i'm really looking cool. forward to what they continue to do cool. so Sounds a good time yeah yeah and and then i also um on the complete opposite side of the spectrum i went to um the new york film festival uh, yeah, and yeah. then they had the views from the avant-garde no, festival that's there. pretty small isn't it relatively it's small and it's also huge. So there's also there's basically like um, there's the main section mm. which is like maybe twenty five titles, um, and they're all like quite expensive admissions, like thirty dollars or more, uh, more oh. in New Zealand. Um, I almost went to see a Dangerous Method with David Cronenberg presenting, oh, yeah. but it was going to be like sixty or seventy New Zealand dollars, wow. and um, and a lot of them are for titles that are going to open there relatively soon. So. Yeah. Um, you know, Melancholia played um, the artist uh, Le Havre, um, oh, yeah. uh, the Almodovar film, uh, and I think 
uh, the Cronenberg film uh, yeah. Shame. You Shame. know, so there there are a couple like slightly more Mar- Martha Marcy May Marlene played there actually, yeah. and they do have a lot of events associated with it. So I yeah. think you actually uh, watched uh, the, yeah, Eric Cohn's um, yeah. interview with uh, the Martha Marcy um, production crew. Yeah, yeah, and I was sitting in the audience for that. So yeah, yeah. That, I, that, I, that, my that was question was read out. Even. Yeah, 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 and discussed I, it greatly. I was the one guy who raised his hand when they asked you saw after school, and uh, <laughs> I got a little nod from Antonio Campos. I'm like, yes. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so there's also, uh, for instance, there's that the size of that is easily dwarfed with all the side uh, screenings. There is a run of um, 25 or 30 Nakatsu. Um, uh, j- uh, the pr- Japanese production company oh. of um, their old films, and really? that, so I saw a couple of those. I saw Capricious Young Man, um, which was a strange kind of samurai comedy of errors <laughs> sort of thing, uh, and um, uh, Mud and Soldiers, which was um, <laughs> sort of described as like the structuralist 1930s version of a Michael Bay film where it's just like lots lots of marching and wow. lots of explosions, explosions yeah. and, but you know in a very uh, it, 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 it's a strange film and like but not necessarily strange in a way that would appeal to a lot of people but yeah. it's fascinating um, and uh, some others and then um some other yeah some other programs that I can't recall and then there was a week, whole weekend um, devoted to views from the avant-garde which has been running for 30 years and has a lot of the highest profile names in avant-garde filmmaking yeah. which of course means a bunch of people nobody's heard of yeah. <laughs> um, but um, there was I got to see some uh, stunning films there um, Ken Jacobs who's been making films for 40 or 50 years um, made a film called Seeking the Monkey King um, that consisted entirely of aluminum foil and uh, two lights. And so he had, you know, one color on one side and one on the other side. And he would slightly manipulate the aluminum foil and strobe between the two different lights. And then um, it created this stereoscopic sort of 3D effect uh, and that was just gigantic combined with um, J.G. Thoroughwell. Uh, who does the music for Venture Brothers and oh, yeah. has done Manorexia and Fetus and Steroid Maximus with this bombastic soundtrack and then would interrupt for these um, political uh, cards. But um, yeah, it was a monumental film. It's one I'd love to be able to see again mm. uh, and, and for the festival to bring here. It's a 40-minute film. That would go in... The festival does a couple of avant-garde experimental sort of... Um, joined programs yeah fitting something like that i guess yeah um on the other side of technology there was a um, group called the open-ended group who've developed their own um software and they had a 3d film there called um they had a 3d film there we'll just stick with that uh and uh upending i believe it was called and what it would do is they would take um actual objects and then they would encode it and so you'd create these uh, sense of these objects in space but they'd be able to transform into each other and they had this very um they'd break the objects down to their vectors so you'd have like these sort of dullish colorful lines of color moving in a black space yeah and with a very kind of vector linear sort of feel to it but almost with like a sort of spider webby effect coming off it it's not like anything i've ever seen um they have a couple videos on Vimeo that give you some of the idea, but the um, 
obviously seeing it in, in 3D, 3D gives yeah. it another dimensionality. I haven't seen any 3D stuff like that, but I've seen a, something that sounds like a few experimental pieces in 2D that, um, that I've that I've seen that sounds similar. Yeah, um, well, yeah, you should take, you should take a look. I'll post a link and okay. um, see if you can yeah. see that. And then, um, yeah, and conversely, there's guys who only work in 16 millimeter yeah. showing their stuff. And it's like I talked to Nathaniel Dorsky, who's um, used is a longtime um, avant-garde filmmaker. He wrote a book called Devotional Cinema. That's one of the land, a landmark um, book on the topic. And um, uh, he only will show his stuff at 60 mil on silent speed. He won't project it. He won't transfer it to video and it wouldn't actually work on video. The, the yeah. variations of color and, and he does, you know, uh, multiple layers of images yeah. on the same thing. And the color registers he's working in are so minute and distinct yeah. a lot of the time that it would just turn to soup. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's your only chance to get to see some of those things. So it's a, it's yeah. a really different, that's kind of um, cool crowd. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, a very yeah. but a very familial one that was it was really like obviously it was like you know for them it's like the one weekend where it's like yeah, well, everybody to, who cares about that is gathered in yeah. one place and it's not something like you know Fantastic Fest. It's like these films can become part of a bigger industry and break yeah. out and kind of you know go worldwide. You know, this really um, is these, a niche sort yeah. of cottage film industry oh that's it that's it that's cool it's almost like you imagine what a poetic um going to a poetry conference or something yeah. would be like <laughs> so what about you man what have you been watching while i've been off partying in the states um not a lot really um been watching a lot of tv um catching up on series yeah yeah series um i just uh just got the release of um of this is england 86 um, which I, I'm a big Shane Meadows fan. So, so I've heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, um, I, I dig saying that. They're actually in the middle of film. Well, middle of film. They're at the end of, um, I think they've just picture locked, actually. Um, this is in 88, the next instalment. Um, so that's How kind, many are they doing? Uh, I have no idea, actually. Right. Um, so I this, presume it's yeah. going to stay in the 80s, um, but... I don't know. So when's the first? When's the first one? Is is this the the feature? Is that from prior to eighty six? Yeah, pro- yeah. It's, um, uh, the feature is three years before. It's based. Uh, so I said, think it's set in eighty three against okay. against the backdrop of the Falklands War, right? Um, and and early skinhead movement and and sort of the birth of the National Front. Um, how the skinheads kind of started off as this kind of political, but kind of not not a racial kind of motivated group and then sort of got taken over by the national front and um yeah sort of around around that area um and then 86 is three years on and focuses on um the same group um although it focuses more on the rest of the skinhead gang who have now kind of i guess they're still kind of into that mode but i think um some of the notes i've seen have said that it's kind of moved on to mod revivalist kind of era in the UK, um, so it, it sort of fleshes out a lot of the gang, Lol and Woody, and, and some of the others, um, and still has Thomas's, who's the main kid, um, uh, Sean actually is his character name, Thomas's real name, um, storyline going on, and, and they kind of mesh in together. It's only a four episode um, piece, but okay. it, um, when, I, when I first saw it, it plays really nicely. Um, it started off to me being almost feeling a little bit cheesy, um, but sort of nicely sort of cruises into something a little more a little more heavy it's one of the things i really like about shane meadows is that he takes what you'd consider i guess social realist sort of cinema uh but puts a really whimsical quality to it 
um, there's always a sort of an aspect of humour and whimsy and and quite and not really surrealism, but um, but yeah, there's quite very light, just a bit more edges play. to it, yeah. yeah. Um, and in some ways, you know, like it's slightly more theatrical than your sort of bog standard sort of maybe Ken Loach film. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about him, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, which I really like. Uh, and so this started off perhaps a more on the almost the comical whimsical side of it, almost too far that way. But then it settled really nicely, I thought, into a, a sort of a very very much a heavier sort of. Um, Siri um, and I think Shane Meadows really wanted to uh, work on some ideas he had for the characters moving ahead which is why he sort of proposed the TV show um, but he also he has a he, as a director he has a very kind of uh, socially aware way of working he recognises that as a filmmaker um, even though he's not a big budget one you go into a, a setting uh, like he is working with non-professional actors um, and you take people out of the situation you show them this other way other life and and experience and he said quite often things like that happen um and then the filmmakers bugger off the film's done with and they just completely forget about these people who for the most part just drift back into their old life but this is a mismatch with their experience right um, and he doesn't like that and so he's tried to keep working with the actors and actresses that he's that i guess that he's made a platform for in the right. first place so he keeps uh Exactly the same cast moves on. Now, some of those guys are actors who have worked in a lot of other stuff, but a lot of them are just non-professional, and this is their first work, and they've actually gone on to other things now, which is pretty cool. But um, he's sort of kept a social relationship with them and now also a professional relationship and give them a, a chance. But he also wants to keep telling stories about the stuff because a lot of this is kind of autobiographical for him about right. how he grew up in... in um, uh, in the eighties, as a teen in the skinhead era, and, and how um, his experience of that time and that in uh, England and the Thatcherite years um, in the working class and in, in the Midlands, yeah. So it's it's a kind of very cool take, and I, I quite dig it, even though it's sort of outside of my experience. Do you? Um, I've been trying to think of other films that um, start as a film and then became a TV series that followed on with the same actors and. Such so it's it's a really interesting yeah it's, it's not not hasn't been yeah. done too many times I don't think um, yeah. and it's the kind of thing that that could easily fail I think and right. and I guess because he's kept quite a tight rein on it it's not become some sort of spooled out series that just you know goes on forever right. and ever um, but it's a very tight you know four episodes telling a, a particular couple of major story arcs with these same characters um, so it's it's very kind of tightly packaged. Yeah. Um, it works, I think, but they have quite cool things like um, the very opening of uh, of the '86 lot uh, is um, trim footage from the original film that they weren't able to use, but works quite well as an intro. So right. the very so it's a nice bridging into the into the series. Yeah, here's a question for you. Yeah. Um, do you, well first of all before I ask it, do you watch a lot of other um, like Breaking Bad and The Wire? And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, do you think that? I mean, I, I think it's pretty non-controversial that TV's one of the best places it's ever been. Yeah, if not yeah. the best. Um, do you think that that's going to change what it means to be a cinephile in the future? I uh, hard to say. I mean, with the way funding for movies is going, um, it could. But I, I, there's something about a feature-length piece um, 
exploring an idea in that sort of 80, 70 to kind of 180, if you're going, stretching it way out, but 100. Should be a Watara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, length of time um, that I think is, and, and on a big screen. Um, I mean, yeah. you don't hardly ever get to see a TV serial on a big screen. Um, but well, you don't get to see a lot of today's movies on a big screen either. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean... I don't know. I mean, I, I still probably see... Like, I don't see nearly as many films at the moment just because of my stage of life as, yeah. I, as I had seen. But um, I probably still see the majority of mine on big screen. There's, and I prefer I, yeah. it that way, you know, as I guess most cinephiles would. Yeah, but I mean, we have to squeeze most of those in during the film festival. Yeah. And increasingly, a lot of those films don't come back. Yeah. I mean, just in the time I've lived here, the number of films yeah, that, 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 that no longer get distribution. I mean, mixed um, cutoff. Yeah. Straight to DVD here, or Blu-ray, what have you. Um, yeah. so, and so I, I mean, I've just picked up a... a copy of the dvd yeah um, well and it's and it's not just art films too i mean something like drive angry which you would have thought would have been a no-brainer like nick cage yeah. like blowing up stuff um being from hell or something i, I don't know all the details but it it sounded awesome and it sounded like and as 3d it's like and, and nobody could be bothered to throw it in the theater for I a think week Conan as well almost almost went to straight to dvd here yeah but, but actually got a very short release or at least you know kind of at the last moment they changed mind again yeah, there, there's quite a few films, and I, I feel like it's increasing, and I feel like, um, you know, there's obviously, like, I, I feel like, you know, Bill and Ant and the people at the festival do good work, but at the end of the day, there'll be things that they don't let in that aren't to their tastes yeah. or whatever, you know, and um, whether it's, like, the new Takeshi Kitano film, nobody's played Outrage here, which yeah. is, you know, supposed to be an excellent film a real return to form for him you know yeah nobody played after school and like you know those guys can't play anything and i everything and i don't lay it at their feet no but i do think that there's you know a lot of a lot an increasing number of really good important films that aren't making it here and maybe i'm wrong and it, you know do the math on that but at the same time like when i was getting into film there was like there was nothing to compare to it i mean the height of tv folk i think 96 is like Ally McBeal or something, you know? Um, and, um, you Friends, know, yeah, I, I think like, um, I think a year or two later, like, it's like, oh, HBO is making this Oz thing. Who knows about this TV on pay channels, you know, we'll yeah, catch yeah. on and, and then Sopranos and whoosh and all yeah. that. And, um, so you kind of got that on one side and then you have the real, um, immersive, immersive narrative of games on the other side, you know, yeah. when, you know, when I was getting into it you know things like you know pac-man and joust really <laughs> didn't have no. anything you know like that and now it seems like a lot of films are actually taking their cues from video games you know i mean you look at scott pilgrim versus the world well and and vice versa i mean uh games started taking a lot of cues from from film intelligence first sure but the fact that that equation is now reversing yeah yeah and um i guess for me, there was never a question growing, you know, TV's the most important thing, and, you know, I, or, sorry, movies are the most important thing. TV was not the most important thing. thing. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, nothing could compare to, like, you know, those great works of cinema, and now it's like, you know, there there aren't a lot of movies that can hope to compare with, you know, season four of The Wire, yeah, you yeah. know, 
or um you know the the overall weight of something like the shield yeah you know and i've just seen that they've um tried to make a movie with woody harrelson called rampart that's like the shield story in an hour and a half and it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah you know um well interesting like the condensing uh, as an example of doing that although it wasn't a sort of a long run thing the trip um mm. michael winterbottom you know did his, did his tv series um yeah which i've seen the series but not the not the cinema not, version. Not the cinema I'm the other way around. I've seen the cinema version on a plane, but not the series. Um, and interesting idea to take that and then condense it into a film. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of um, the the story behind that. Apparently, is um, the Toronto Film Festival was willing to show it, and so but they had he, they had done the series, and they're like, well, if you make it a film, we'll do it. So they just went through. So most of the sequences that are in there are pretty much the same as the sequences in the series, but then yeah. there's just a lot of stuff they've. Cut, yeah. jettisoned and well there's um, a lot of repetitions though uh could yeah i mean um even in the film there's a lot of repetition and um yeah it worked okay for me i know some people who hate it i don't hate it um i liked it okay i but i was just kind of like hanging out with those guys with a slight yeah. tinge of a local hero style ending at the end yeah yeah um anyway um but yeah i mean I didn't watch a movie last night i had time i watched breaking bad instead because i'm catching up on season three of that yeah and, yeah um yeah, I think about the that sort of is being a fan of cinema going to be as marginal as you know being a fan of theater now is where you know it used to be yeah, a yeah. bigger thing bigger. or or radio plays you know there's a story recently about how like I think they just had the last conference of like fans of early radio plays oh, yeah, you know because yeah. um, pretty much all of them were on their, they they were running out of guests you know as yeah. guys who had done one show once yeah. and, you know it's like when they were eight and now they were 80 and you yeah. know they didn't really have that many stories because they were eight yeah yeah so really i don't know maybe a dying medium but um maybe not about Drive, which is a film by Nicholas Winding Rafen, however you pronounce that, Winding, Winding Rafen, um, guy who did the Pusher trilogy and more recently Bronson. Valhalla Rising Yeah, Valhalla well. Rising, sort of well known for sort of stylized ultraviolence. Um, and he's, is he, is he Danish, his background? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Um, he got into a pissing match yeah. with Lars von Trier. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it stars Ryan Gosling, who's very much sort of up-and-coming star, who I just recently learned was um, part of of the Mickey Mouse Club team with uh, Timberlake and Aguilera and Spears and that whole crew. Wow, which, I did not know that. No, neither did I. It was great I thought you were going to say you recently learned he started The Notebook. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, that, which was pretty crazy. That was obviously a... a in some ways, many uh, quite a talented group, um, but yeah. So it's it's a, I guess a a film that uh, that is somewhat divisive. It's a film that we've sort of had mixed reactions to and uh, and changed our views over a period of time. When did you first see Drive? So yeah, I saw it. I I was hugely like I mean, there's it's been it had been nothing but raves from Khan. You know, one best director against. You know, so many other great even, films. Even today, I saw um, a tweet from uh, David Ferrier um, saying, film of the year. Yeah, L- lots of people had said it, been just so enraptured with it. And I I love, 
I love Tulane Blacktop. I love The Driver. I love Vanishing Point. Yeah. I love Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. Yeah. Basically, I love a good 70s car film. Yeah. And <clears throat> the first five minutes of Drive, um, to answer your question, I saw it in September in the States. Like, I saw a double feature with Contagion, actually. I saw oh, really? Contagion first and then Drive. They go to a multiplex. They were showing at the same time. I wanted to see them both. So... Um, oh, right, kind yeah. of, you know, they weren't programmed as a double feature. Then. No, no, it was the um, I'm at a multiplex that shows 30 films. I'm going to make a uh, <laughs> programming decision for myself. And the timing worked better to see Contagion first, which was great because it was actually a Cliff Martinez double feature. And um, oh, yeah. he did the score for both and the oh, score okay. for both is excellent. But um, yeah, and so the first five minutes where you have a getaway driver and you have a very um, almost negligible character development. You just know he's got an ethos and he does things a certain way and you're thrust into this getaway Yeah, that's completely nail-biting. One of the best pieces of cinema I think I've seen in terms of just the sound editing, the picture cutting, and and just pure suspense without feeling... Like it's being pushed too much, you know, yeah. the, the the ebb and flow of silence, being startled, waiting, yeah. having actual breathing time. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, this is going to be the great car movie that I've been waiting, t- you know, 20 years yes, for somebody yeah. new to do. And then they never, the whole rest of the movie, nothing like that happens. And I just sat there sinking in my chair, getting angrier and angrier <laughs> at the film. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my that's my first viewing before Don't we talk about angry yeah 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 I, I was like i was actually wishing i could switch the theater over to drive angry at that point and watch nicholas cage um, oh no please. but um no I, I mean i was like kind of like it was okay but it's one of those things at that point where everything that i perceived as a flaw in the film was exacerbated and um you know i was really frustrated with carrie mulligan's character or yeah. mulligan excuse me who had no apparent characterization whatsoever yeah. um the kind of um the horrible synth pop songs the <laughs> the just yeah the, there was just nothing about the film that worked for me um really and i mean i kind of appreciated the directorial um i appreciated the directorial uh bravura i guess you'd call it or just like i mean it was very boldly directed and he made some really interesting choices and i I definitely recognize that there was talent there um, and some great startling moments. Um, but um, it's, um, on the whole, um, yeah, just just left so frustrated. And, like, that wasn't even the best movie I saw that day. Um, what else did you see? I saw, well, like I said, I saw Contagion. Oh, Contagion. And Contagion has gotten a really bad rap here. I've, I mean, David Ferrier, who you mentioned before, gave it two and a half out of ten um, and it's not a perfect film, but it's a very, very good film. Um, and really, um, one of my favorite Soderbergh's of recent vintage. I, okay. I mean, the informant I like slightly better, but um, it was easily. I mean, I, I saw twenty eight films or whatever at Fantastic Fest, and Contagion was scarier than any of them. Um, you know, it's it's a real unrelenting. Like, you know, you go to a horror film, and you at the end you're like. I know there's not really a hockey masked killer out there. I know that there's not really a book that's going to open a portal to hell. Yeah. You get out of contagion, you're like, this could happen, and that's what would happen. 
by and large, and maybe y- your story is not necessarily identical to everybody's in there. Cheers. Um, but it is, it is just so real and um, unsparing and unglamorous. Yeah. Um, and, and covers quite a large time span as well. So it's just, it's not, it's like when you first hear about it, it's like you think about like those kind of movies. That, oh, they have three or four days to stop the outbreak. And it's yeah. like, well, first of all, they can't stop the outbreak. Yeah. Or then the ways that they can stop it cause their own problems. I don't want to get too much into spoiler territory. Yeah. But um, uh, one of the storylines just doesn't, wasn't really resolved very well. Oh, yeah. Character disappears for like half an hour, comes back for like three minutes of screen time and then disappears. It's like, eh. yeah. But, but um, yeah. By and large, well worth seeing. But we were talking about Drive. Yeah, yeah. What, what was your first experience with Drive? I think okay. you're a bit more positive than I was, but still uh, not convinced. Yeah, Drive, I was... Uh, end of September was a preview screening. Um, and uh, actually in the same theatre that we saw the second screening um, in Queen Street. Um, yeah, I came out of the film and all of my friends were going, oh, this is fantastic, this is wonderful. Um, I heard... Uh, Dan and 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 uh, and David and what have you were talking, saying, you know, film of the year kind of thing. This is, and and I was I I felt relatively like I was being a bit of a downer with with my mates that I was sitting with. Um, I enjoyed the film; it was fantastic. Um, compared to like your average kind of Hollywood shootout, you know, um, piece in the in the cinema, um, you know, top notch, uh, well well and above. But having sort of in my mind, recently come out of this, the festival and thinking of it in light of the festival because it played in Wellington, not in, in Auckland, just because of um, projection issues up here. I'm not having the equipment to project in the cinemas we had. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it... Like you said, it, 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 there was strong direction, beautifully shot. Ryan Gosling was pretty good... Carrie Mulligan's character to me, like you say, was was pretty thin, and even after the second viewing, I still felt like that was the case. I don't think that was her fault. I just think she wasn't sort of written to be fleshed out, really. Um, but I think for me, tonally, it felt like it didn't really know where it wanted to be. Um, there were times when it was doing the whole kind of classic noir feel. There were times when it almost felt like it was trying to be an action film, albeit a slightly, you know, a much better directed one than your standard sort of Michael Bay fare that you get nowadays. Um, and then there were times when it felt like it wanted to be a really European art house piece. Um, and I think uh, it brought to mind to me um, a couple of scenes from Humanity, um, Bruno Dumont, um, where there are parts where, you know, there was just like almost an emotionless kind of journey to extreme violence, um, that that just sort of these moments of great passion that were almost passionately put out there, which which is not a bad thing, you know. As as a film, that can be that can work really well. But for me, the film itself kept jumping between these tones, um, not visual tones, but uh, almost genre and emotional tones that that are somewhat mismatched, um, and. So that that frustrated me a little bit. I also had issues with the um, with the sound. I really did like the the score and the soundtrack, but I felt like the volume levels on the soundtrack, um, the music in particular, were pushed way too forward for me um, compared with the um, 
with I guess the ambient noise and, and the dialogue sometimes um, well not so much the dialogue because they never put the music over the dialogue particularly but um, but the ambient noise of, of driving road sounds all that kind of stuff it was like you had a piece of dialogue you had some stuff and then suddenly you'd have the song and the song was front and centre and that's what it was about um, well you wait so long to get a piece of dialogue that you want to be able to hear <laughs> that was something the first time I I just got so impatient with the long pauses and, <laughs> so I didn't have an issue with that <laughs> I, I, there, there's a bit where the police show up um, to ask Kerry Mulligan a question yeah. and after three seconds they're like can you answer the question and I just wanted to yell out <laughs> she's okay she just takes four seconds to answer anything Any in this movie you know um, and yeah so that, that was uh, one thing I, I'm curious about like a lot of um, our experience with other people's reactions. I mean, you had some in person, yeah. but a lot of it's been on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I made a joke before about the team Tilda yeah. or whatever, but there is a lot of what seems to be increasing, at least maybe just in the circles that we follow on Twitter, like it's sort of absolutism. And maybe oh, it's ext- some, yeah, extreme about opinions being put out there about stuff. Yeah. yeah. And very non-nuanced and like, Obviously, it's 140 characters, and there's a limit to the nuance. But maybe people want to feel like they're 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 taking a definite stance. Um, whereas I've always been personally a little more personality-wise, try to be a little more vague. <laughs> just because I, I don't, yeah. I, I have an issue with um, with sometimes with um, with giving really hard hardline. This one's because I, I kind of work out my way of feeling about things often in a discussion forum as opposed to yeah. I come with a pre-prepared response and that's it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think one thing that I have, and um, this really obviously ties in, um, it's not clear to anybody who's listening, but um, we went to see this together a second time. Yeah. And one of the things that I often feel is that the only really fair way to judge a film is to watch it a second time. Yeah. Because the first time you're watching it against your preconceptions. Yeah. And, um, you know, it may not work because, you know, I was expecting, you know, I was, I, I was, was wanting the driver you know, or yeah, vanishing yeah. point or whatever. And then I'm getting this kind vanishing of... point for the, for the teens or whatever. Yeah, the, this sort of logie, <laughs> violence-ridden thing. And I'm like, I, what is... And, you know... Um, and part of that, you know, if the extreme phrase on Twitter hadn't been there, if it had just been like some movie I randomly picked out of multiplex and I was expecting fast five and I got that, I probably would have come out like, wow, that's a really different, interesting yeah. movie that just snuck in, it snuck yeah. in there as opposed to the, you know, the relentless uh, Hosanna's. Top five. And, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's the thing. It seemed like the nuance of discussion around Drive is like, is it the number one film of the year or is it only in the top five? And you were like, it might be in my second top five. And everyone's like, heretic. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't even think it's in my top 50. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so, and, so we went to go see it and, and walking towards the second screening of it. I, I, I came much more positively inclined to it. And like, the intervening period, like as we talked on our discussion on Twitter, what have you, and, and you were going, what's, what's up with your turnaround? And my turnaround wasn't perhaps quite as much as it seemed, partially because of the, re- the review I wrote and the rating it got. Um, but um, I think th- that, re- that rating was one of the best few films of the year or something. Like yeah, that. the language around the rating is not that helpful, I, and, I, and I didn't write those. Yeah. Um, but in terms of 
putting the film in context of the multiplex masses um, as opposed to the films that I really want to see and only see. Um, so, like, in my, if I'd seen that in the festival, it wouldn't be in my top ten probably. Right. Um, or top five. After a first viewing or after a second viewing? After a second viewing, um, it might make a top ten for the year, but I'm not convinced necessarily. Um, it certainly wouldn't be in the top five. Um, but... But in saying that, compared to the general list of cinema for the year that people reading the review are comparing it to, yeah, it's well above in the top, you know, it's in the top 5% of those, I think. Yeah. Um, which is where the rating came from. But um, for me, the film came together a lot more. And I guess it's, it's, it's a, a testament to the, um, to the quality of the film is that I couldn't stop thinking about it. Even though I, I had issues with it, it kept playing on my mind. What is it about this film that people love, and why? 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 What is it about it that I've got issues with? And going, I still have issues with some of these things, but I actually see what he's doing with some of the stuff now, or, or at least I, I, I have an understanding of what I think um, Rayfin is, is playing with, um, and some of this is quite is quite clever. Like I, I really do like. There's a few key things in it that stuck out to me, such um, as uh, comments. Uh, his I mean, the, the very funny line that he whacks in there about with Bernie talking about uh, his background, uh, how, you know how we met, blah, blah, blah. I used to make films in the 80s. Um, you know, little <laughs> action films, a little sexy. One critic called them European. <laughs> and, and, and it's essentially a comment on the film. Um, you've got this film which um, ostensibly is a road film that, that these people are thinking, oh, this is Fast Five, you know, it's classic right, kind of... Yeah. Fast and Furious, um, or you're thinking it could be more of a you know a 70s existential road film, um, and he's going, but actually um, you get in there, it's a little bit cheap, it's a little bit nasty, but it's also it's it's what people might call European, except that it actually is European and he's got a European flavour to it, and so you've got all this real kind of restrained dialogue. They've they from their from. A really interesting interview I heard with um, Gosling and Rafen, they essentially carved out something like two-thirds of the dialogue from the original script when right. they picked it up and worked with it. Um, and so you've got these pauses, you've got this kind of interesting cadence to the film that, that it really isn't a Hollywood thing. Right. But in a very much a Hollywood stamp genre, you know? Um, so you've got like this this L.A. noir piece that, that isn't out of place in, 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 a, in Hollywood fair and sort of possibly better end of Hollywood fair but the the cadence and, and some of the tone things are very much out of place and out of step with the, with the Hollywood field. One thing that um, my friend Steve Chow noted about the um, cinematography is um, I forget, he couldn't remember the painters but um, that mm. um, a lot of the frames are based on famous um, paintings yeah, yeah, of LA. I had no, I had no idea. And, um, here, so here's something interesting. The first time I saw it on 35mm um and it was an underlit bulb, oh, and right, there was yeah. something not quite right with the sound. Um, and then we saw it in digital. Yeah, and, yeah. and so so that was that was the first time, and and the images just sung this time, like yeah. seeing it in digital. Yeah. Um, and it was shot on digital, the Ari Alexa. Yeah, yeah, great camera. And I don't know how much of it's that, and how much of it was just a bad thirty-five mil presentation. Yeah. Um, but I definitely felt a lot, you know. I mean the 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 images were just electric. Yeah, that's, that's very. Much, I think the, you're right. I think there's, uh, a, yeah. there's a visual, um, uh, not appeal. There's there's a kind of a, almost a visual assault or attack 
in in the shooting, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, There's just an attention to light, which um, yeah, um, you know, lighting, yeah, light, lighting light is something. Tone. Yeah, um, there's a lot of non-naturalistic. Uh, like if you look at a frame, and you look at where the light's hitting a person on their face, it's like, and you think about where the lights would be in reality. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, like it doesn't it doesn't work. And but but at the same time. Uh, at iconic level, it works. Did you and, notice the difference between the daytime lighting and the nighttime lighting in that respect? Um, I hadn't thought about it explicitly, but you mentioned it a bit. But yeah, because for me, that really split the, the some of the tone things of the film when I got to grips with the with thinking about that later on. Um, for me, there was a real um, divide between um, almost the mundaneness of LA during the daytime shots, which was fantastic. Like I, I, I like a very real thing, and it reminded me to a degree, not in terms of the film, but of um, uh, Ter- Terry Zweigoff's um, Ghost World, the right. way that he kind of shot LA as this sort of very mundane, everyday kind of slightly dirty, grimy place. Um, um, Hunter Strong Love came to mind to me yeah, at points, but at night, um, where a lot of the action happens where the driving happens um, for the most part, except for the escape thing. Um, but with, with, with the opening sequence happens and where a lot of the stuff with her happens, um, there's a real kind of, that's where you get this bizarre, quite, uh, quite idiosyncratic lighting and, and, and visual tone. Um, and it, and it almost takes, it takes it like you say, and uh, by bizarre choices into it, almost a, a fantastical, place and so you this is this real divide between the mundane and almost a, a, a mythic kind of quality i was about i was about to prompt you with the word mythic because um that's something that was on my mind a lot and um i think one of the the first time i was trying to relate to the characters a bit much as human beings and as, as previously yeah. mentioned carrie mulligan's character just fails on on that account but if you start dealing with it in that sort of sense and um if you take Ryan Gosling's fascination with her, it's it's interesting because the first time I was like complaining about the characterization of Carrie Mulligan, and there's yeah, nothing yeah. there. But in that typical kind of movie, she'd be more of like, you know, often like he'd fall in love with the femme fatale, and yeah, she wouldn't yeah. necessarily have any more characterization. But he'd be more of like an iconic thing where you're instantly yeah. like, oh, you know, she's spunky and dangerous, yeah, and yeah, sexy. Whereas Carrie Mulligan in this is is very frumpy. I, th- I think the first time we see her, she's carrying. A laundry basket, yeah, you know, yeah. You see her grocery shopping, you know, all this stuff, and all of that's like, I, I, the way I choose to read the film that made me think, oh, this is actually really clever, is actually she's symbolic of domesticity, and yeah. so that's like his, um, you know, what he longs that's, for, yeah, that he longs but can for, never yeah. have. I mean, they've they've got two two apartments that are ostensibly in the same building. Well, they're right and, beside each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and his looks like a hotel room. But his has nothing in it. It's yeah. totally bare. Yeah. And he, and, and he works on bits and pieces and then just disappears and hers is the home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you wouldn't actually know that they were the same apartment built. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's... Um, that's mirrored in the dialogue. That, that, that There was that particular piece of dialogue as well um, that I... Um, that, that actually um, sprang out to me... Uh, the closing phone call. Yeah, um, in the film, the first viewing, but um, but really when I was thinking, when I was writing my review and I was thinking about it, 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 it very much sort of came home to me um, when I was thinking about that particular piece of dialogue, which I, I think passed by um, a lot of people. And maybe I'm reading more into it than there's there, but like like I think you commented, when there's so little dialogue in a film, then pretty much all of it has to count. Yeah. Um, 
where Ryan Gosling, the driver, rings up Carrie Mulligan on the phone, and essentially she doesn't really sort of say much, and 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 he sort of says, "You know, I don't want to be in your face. Can you just listen? I just want to say some stuff to you." And he said, and he he basically says, "This has been the best part of my life, um, the best time of my life." But as you say, that longing for domesticity for something that he doesn't have, um, and but the way that he phrases what he says to her, the time that I've had to be around you and and the boy whose name I don't remember. Um, Benicio. Yeah, Benicio, yeah. Um, has been the best in my life. Um, and and it's there's a sense in which, it's not to be with you, but to be around you, there's a sense in which he has put himself in this position, he's kind of thrown out all his rules to, to try and connect, but he can't actually connect. And no matter how much he's in there, he's always sort of slightly outside observer. He's being around them, he's not with them, he's not part of that group He's just he's a peripheral who spends his time there. Stuff goes awry, and then essentially he has to sort of fix the situation, then ride off into the sunset, sort of thing, or drive off into the sunset. Yeah, there's um, can't escape his mythic qualities. Place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a mismatch of social cues. It's it's that mm. I mean that elevator scene that has this mm. very iconic love kiss moment back to back with this horrible act of violence, and it's and it's set up to. Yeah, completely. It's sort of out of step with the kind of emotional tone of where they're at in their relationship in terms of her husband having died and all that kind of stuff, and him being having sort of trying to. Should we say spoilers somewhere? Oh, yeah, spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> uh, try, you know that whole kind of thing of, of of him trying to make up for for problems that he's been involved in, you know, inadvertently, um, and then he d- lays this big kiss on her that she doesn't know relates to something else, but he there's a forced moment of passion that he's, I guess, sinking all of his hopes and dreams and just, it's almost like saying goodbye to them because he knows it's also a, a, a ruse to put the other person in the lift who's planning violence on them um, yeah. off so that he can then, you know, take care of it. Um, and so it's it's... In one sense, it's him offloading all of his hopes and dreams, but it's at the same time, it's not a pure act. It's 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 a it's a um, it's a, a stepping stone to the necessity it, of his his mythic violence and and. But the the fact that the film treats it as a pure act. Yeah. I mean, the lighting the change changes. Lighting, yeah, yeah. The the um, yeah, they the isolate car it. is the car is uh, suddenly becomes unreasonably wide. Mm. There's a camera movement mm. in and it and it is one of these. It is. Viscerally, a great, a great cinematic love yeah. moment. It just happens to be followed yeah. by a horrendous beating, which is another kind of um, punch drunk love yeah. sort of parallel, which is one of my all time favorite films. And that um, that tension between um, you know great love and the capacity yeah. for you know great violence, yeah. and um, you know that this film has a very different ending but there I, there are a lot of similarities the other thing that you journey. mentioned earlier um i'm not sure if it, i think it was mentioned in relation to another film but that um sprang to mind to me was um was ghost dog um and that um the driver basically lives to his own sort of version of a of a bushido code kind of thing yeah i've seen that comparison before but it was very like i mean I, i've also seen the comparison to the melville films like the oh, samurai yeah. Yeah, yeah. and things like that and i never felt like there was enough of a sense of what that code was to really well i, I think work for me i mean if it works for other people you know great well there um, was for me and yeah. and 
particularly like because because he's it's so put out there in the opening sequence, but also in the sequence, it's sort of revisited the the overstepping the bounds of it with the um, the scene in the cafe in the diner with the yeah. ex customer who comes up and he basically says, "Get away from here, or you know I'm going to mash your face in." Um, it's saying this is outside of the bounds of our relationship and and yeah. and the and the bounds that I've set up for how this works, um, and particularly during the day, you know, it's, this is not a job I'm on. This is this is me in life kind of thing, um, and and the fact that to try and seek this connection to domesticity in actual life, he transgresses his own bounds, and things go terribly awry and then he has to step into the place of fixing that up and becoming somewhat of a saviour for a mess that he's somewhat created um, and then he has to then after he's done that step back into his mythic capacity and and go away yeah I mean I guess I see what, I see what you're saying yeah. um, for me there's something about those characters like Ghost Dog and, and, um, and the emotional and in, tenor of them both as well, of, of being yeah. very kind of controlled and... But Ghost Dog has that real strong... I mean, I guess it has that real strong relationship with the child. Well, has, and and there's, the there's a sense of... There's a sense that it informs his humanity, where yeah. there's, no, there's not actually a sense that... Well, the, the driver, driver has, a, has a good co- relationship with the son, with Benicio, that... Um, uh, he, he, he enjoys it and appreciates it, but it's almost like... One of the things in terms of the speed of the dialogue delivery um, I really noticed is that Ryan Gosling processes each statement emotionally and then gives a verbal response or doesn't sometimes. But, you know, um, in most films, the dialogue is the the engine for for delivering the emotion. And it's very rare to watch, realize that watch somebody's just processing... An yeah. emotional response to what, ha- and I think that was why it threw me the first time. Like the second time, the speed didn't bother me at all. It, um, I just clicked with that, but um, but that's a very unnatural way, and um, and it and yeah, there's something very peculiar about it. Um, how you doing on the? Oh, I know, good, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I mean, I still have minor qualms with the movie i'm not sure the whole opera aria thing quite works i mean i do there is something interesting to me about the arc and we're getting into major spoiler territory here um the further we get down the road with the driver as he um basically like is unleashing his retribution um the mob his um visage disappears further when he goes to kill mm. um ron perlman's character yeah, he's wearing the, the plastic the mask, mask yeah. and then when he kills albert brooks at the end um that's all happening in chat he yeah. it's just the shadow and the first first time i saw it i had a real i was like after 90 minutes of a movie called drive the big final show-off scene a killing you know what what is that undoubtedly an iconic performance from Albert Brooks? Yeah. And your big payoff is a shot of a shadow on the pavement that anyone with you know ten bucks could pull. Off. <laughs> I mean, I felt I felt like you know I didn't even have the decency of a good payoff. But yeah. like thinking about it in those terms, 
yeah. of like how this process of, of going down this of road has, yeah. has and ta- yeah taken him away from the road he wanted to be on yeah you know and um and there is this sort of the unity at the end of him returning just him in his car and the night yeah. and the light and there's a sense that by leaving the money behind and starting over he is somehow Purged. being made whole i don't i don't want to get too deep into that stuff because i mean i don't at the end i don't think there's a strong argument for this movie on substance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I've had a couple different movies um, come up in my Twitter feed recently with people just lambasting them. Um, like one guy walked out of Beyond the Black Rainbow. It's like, all style, no substance. You yeah. Know? And um, I don't think... I, th- I think yeah, and that's just and such and a... Scott Pilgrim. As well. Well, yeah, yeah, Scott Pilgrim, which yeah, that's a whole other discussion yeah um and and sometimes i think maybe it's substance that you just don't relate to but also i think it's a i think it's a reason that people justify movies they don't like because i think most people have movies that if they really get called on it it's like okay Mm. maybe there's not a lot of substance there but most cinephiles like you know will go on a trip they'll go yeah um, yeah. they'll go through the end of 2001 and it's like yeah maybe there's some substance there but you know it's just such a it's such a voyage and yeah you know and there's something to be said for 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 working in a cinematic medium for yeah. the visual journey as yeah, well, well as the narrative yeah Suspiria yeah. or Eraserhead I mean you know the, the movies like that like I mean you could I can see somebody slugging off and saying all style no substance and it's like yeah I mean Suspiria doesn't make any bloody sense you know and yeah. it has some of the worst dialogue in the history of cinema. But it's it's epic, great filmmaking, yeah, you know, yeah. and and visionary and beautiful and Eraserhead yeah. similar, and you know you can kind of you can read about it and you can be like, oh, there were these themes at work. Yeah. But I think a lot. I think I think in general something that happens a lot in analysis of cinema is people have a visceral reaction to something, yeah, and then dismiss it. And it's okay to have that vis. I mean, you know, some yeah. not not everything's for everybody, you yeah, know, yeah. and that's. Um, I mean, Sleeping Beauty is another film film that I loved this year yeah. that has, I mean, I got screamed at on Twitter for suggesting <laughs> that was a good film. I, uh, you know, I, I, I posted one thing and it's, it's a film that I actually just don't think I'll talk about on Twitter anymore because I love it so much, but for very specific reasons that I don't think that talking about would change anybody's mind. Yeah. Mind. And I think ultimately it's like, I have a friend who loved it as well, and it's just like it's an emotional thing, and you either get it or you don't, <laughs> and it either just clicks and sticks yeah. in your gut and turns the knife, or it just kind of, you know, sits yeah. there. I mean, Scott Scott Pilgrim actually, like I I really didn't like the style of it, but um, I f- actually found something really resonant about um, the whole idea of embarking on this epic quest and and having committed yourself to these you know yeah. fighting these seven so even ex girlfriend and yeah. by and by by ex girlfriend five he doesn't even want to anymore but he's committed to this thing yeah, yeah, yeah. that he swore you know and he's and he, and and to me that that was really resonant you know and I mean it's not deep it's not it's not like you know it doesn't I, I'm not I'm not going to make big arguments for the substance of Scott Pilgrim you no, know no. and I I mean um, but. It did have a lot more resonance to me than 
some films, despite the fact that, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I yeah, yeah, I just didn't gel with the yeah. the vibe of it. Um, with, but kind of like I didn't gel with it, the drive on a different level Level, on a first screening but second screening second screening i i really really like it and it could wind up in as much as i hate to say it it could wind up in my top 10 for the year (laughs) um i'm actually considering a third go of it you know um because i do think that um you know it's it's well for one thing there's a hell of a lot else out right now Mm -hmm. but um also um it it is a consummately directed film it's a beautifully photographed film it's not like a lot of other films and um, seeing it digitally projected, I just really gelled. I still hate the synth pop. Um, it's I'm got the still... best, best pair of gangsters I've seen in a while. <laughs> Albert Brooks and Ron Pillman, man. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. Jewish gangsters. <laughs> that's great and there's and there's just enough backstory there to make it but I think yeah. that's something that's that's interesting I mean you know that you do have those little bits of those characters that are actually more nuanced and developed than anything yeah. you have from our protagonist and yeah, love yeah. interest um, and that's actually we haven't really talked about Brian Cranston's character uh, at all either who's kind of a bit Captain Exposition a bit but also yeah, yeah. there is this contrast where it's like he is. He's, uh, he's, I almost sort of think of him as as the disappointing uncle. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. the, he's the guy you kind of you kind of have to have round, and you want to do what you can for him, but at the same time, you know he's a bit of a lead chain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's the closest thing he has to a family mm. at the start of it, but it's also clear he's really using. Mm. Um, he's essentially trying to get his yeah. own off the. You know, make for himself off the back of other of of his friends. Yeah, um, but it's that it's part of the Brian Cranston magic as well. Yeah. That was another Drive Contagion similarity. They have that Brian Cranston. Oh really? Yeah. yeah, he's got a small role in Contagion. But uh, yeah, I mean that's I mean I mean talk, the guy who single handedly makes the lead character in Breaking Bad watchable as opposed to yeah, yeah. just. Which is quite funny because so, I, I'd completely forgotten that he was um, the dad in Malcolm in the Middle um, after sort of having watched Broken Bad and just sort of thinking of him in that role. And then someone, I said, someone, oh, Brian Cranston um, yeah. is in Drive. And they said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, Malcolm in the Middle. And I went, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's, re- <laughs> he's reinvented himself, you know. So um, we've probably ranted enough about it. Yeah.